describes a Professor Langdon who uh, wants to save Vatican City from an antimatter bomb. Well, it doesn't help us grasp the concept at all. Star Trek doesn't help us all. I, I, I did wonder how in Star Trek we get from here to 100 light years away in an episode, but, but I do know it's, it's, now this is truth because it's on TV, because it's, an, it's a matter-antimatter annihilation propulsion. And if you can do that, you, then you can go faster than the speed of light and you can get across there in the matter of hours. <clears throat> so that is science fiction, but, but, and physicists write in tomes that I can't understand, uh, genuine academic physics assures us that antimatter is also the stuff of reality. That uh, antimatter particles are almost identical to their sort of matter counterparts, except, now here's, here's the concept, except they carry the opposite spin and the opposite charge and they want to annihilate matter. So when antimatter meets matter, they immediately annihilate themselves into energy. And that description got my attention. Uh, the, the, the description of uh, these opposite things, these opposite concepts with uh, an opposite charge and an opposite spin and coexisting but one is trying to annihilate the other. And I think that is just like Faith and anti-faith. It just reminded me of the concepts of faith and anti-faith, which coexist for this time that we're here on earth and they have the opposite charge and the opposite spin and anti-faith is seeking to annihilate faith. which is the subject of Acts 4. So helpfully read just then, this wonderful, exciting chapter. There is a theme running through it. Now, you've been reading through the book of Acts. Well, good on you. You're doing well. Uh, One of the voices from the past generation, Martin Lloyd-Jones, says uh, in his many writings, but he says where to live by that book, that is, Book of Acts. The Book of Acts, uh, Jones says, is a tonic. It's like a tonic. It's the greatest tonic that I know in the realm of the Spirit. And it's the job of every church to compare itself with the church of the first century. Now, I say that guardedly, but that's right. We ought to compare ourselves with the church of the first century in order to learn from its mistakes recapture its confidence, embrace its vision and take up its power. Just don't forget the first one, will you, of those four. That despite all its imperfections and troubles, the young church of the book of Acts was a church overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit. And see where this passage of scripture takes us from that we've just read together and I've 
I would encourage you to have one open in front of you in, in text or on your iPhone or whatever's comfortable. Uh, the text before us is Acts 4. And it takes us from verse 1 to verse 31 from two men speaking of Jesus. That's the first verse. And where does it leave us? What was the last verse that... Julie, wasn't it? You read? Julie? Julia. Um, the last word from two men speaking of Jesus to a whole church filled with the Spirit of God. And so I'm exploring this question, what does a church overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit look like? And part of the answer to that question is that a church overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit gets involved in this great war, the war between the light of Christ and the forces of darkness. And a church full of the Spirit will feel the struggle A church filled with the Holy Spirit will see the battle lines and will speak into it the terms of Christ. A church on fire with the Holy Spirit sees that there is in this world, for as long as we exist, faith and anti-faith, and the two can never sit comfortably together. Let me just go through the story of Luke, uh, yes, it's Luke's story in Acts 4. Uh, And I want to follow the story exactly as Luke gives it, from verse 1 to verse 31, with that theme in mind, faith, anti-faith, with anti-faith seeking to annihilate faith. Now, the first paragraph is the arrest. So just verses 1 to 4, uh, let's just read this again so we have it in our mind, verses 1 to 4. Of Acts 4, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. And they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many, but many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Do you see there the anti-faith and faith coexisting, about to explode? There it is. I mean, first of all, meet anti-faith. Where's anti-faith? Well, anti-faith is the Sadducean priests, together with the hired muscle they had to control temple events. Now, these men were the religious elite and made up the, the ruling party of the Sanhedrin, which was the supreme court in the Jewish nation. And, you know, we could have predicted there was going to be trouble because here, in front of the Sadducees, that is, the rulers of religion, here, Peter and James were teaching. Now, we could have predicted this wasn't going to end well. Pete and John were teaching, which directly undermined Sadducean authority. If anyone was to speak to the people about anything religious, it should have come with Sanhedrin license. And so Peter and John cut a blow to the standing authority of the religious elite. But then there was another problem. It was bad enough that they were teaching the people, speaking to the people. However, problem number two is that Peter and John we're teaching that Jesus is the Messiah sent from heaven. Now that's the straw that broke the camel's back. 
By this they ruffled Sadducean feathers and they trod on Sadducean corns. This is poking the bear. Now Luke reminds us, doesn't he, while they were speaking, while they were speaking, that reminds us, well, what were they speaking? Well, was it last Sunday? I don't know, I wasn't here, but was it last Sunday you were looking at what they were speaking in chapter 3? And so if you just have a quick look back, just flick your eyes back to the previous chapter and we recall how the crippled man was healed and all the people were amazed and then Peter stood up and said, no, you shouldn't be surprised. All this is by God's power. And then in verse 13 of the previous chapter, now talk about poking the bear. What did Peter say in verse 15? I mean, this is breathtakingly audacious. This is profound. Peter, an unschooled fisherman filled with the Holy Spirit said, you guys killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Is there anything more profound than that? Here's the author of life, the creator of the universe, our creator, our life giver, you killed him. How did Peter come up with those words? And you see, it's interesting, isn't it, that of all that Peter and John spoke about, what disturbed the Sadduceans the most? What were they greatly disturbed about? Verse 2. They were greatly agitated by teaching on resurrection. Of all they said, and that was chapter 3, it's all recorded there, it was a wonderful sermon. Peter and John, or Peter spoke about the whole sweep of Old Testament history and all of that, but what really got up the nose of the Sadducean leaders was resurrection, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now that's typifying anti-faith. And where is faith? Well, it's in verse 4, isn't it? There is faith. All the people believed. Which is what they were preaching for. Now, the full message is summarised in last week's passage, chapter 3. We've only got to return to verse 19 of that chapter to to see that Peter was preaching for repentance. Verse 19 of chapter 3, Repent then and turn to God, that your sins can be wiped out and times of refreshing can come from the Lord. And all the people believed. Isn't that that striking? Here's the same message that both groups of people heard. So it was the same preaching about Jesus, the author of life, and the need to repent. And here are the Sadducean leaders who heard that message and they got agitated. And here the whole host of people who heard the same message and whose hearts melted. That is how the gospel works. And we cannot explain that. Paul tried to, in a Corinthian letter, he tried to explain it. And he racked his brain and he said, oh, it's something like this, it's, it's, it, it's to those people who are being saved, when they hear the gospel, it's a sweet-smelling aroma of dinner or something. A sweet-smelling aroma... But the same message in other ears to those who are perishing, it's the smell of death. That's the best Paul could come up with. But here it is, and and check, it's the same gospel. You check verse 2 and compare it with verse 4. 
What's the difference? Well, it's the same gospel about Jesus. It's the same message about resurrection. It's the same need to repent. To some it angers and agitates, to other it appeals because God gives faith. And there are 5,000 on the census that day who believed. So I just want to pause on that first point, that there is anti-faith and faith at work. Now, it's not that anti-faith was agitated about one thing and and the, the men and women of faith believed another. No, no. Anti-faith was agitated about the gospel and, and the men and women believed the gospel. They were reacting to the same gospel differently and that's the mystery of preaching the gospel. That's, that's, that's the excitement of where we live today. We, we speak to our neighbour, we speak to our friend, we speak to our family member, we speak to our son and daughter and we present the same gospel life-giving message. And to some it agitates and to others it melts the heart. We've got to understand that. Our job is to speak the gospel more and more clearly. Let's go through the passage, the second part, the next day. I like to have the little passages in days if they're given to us. So verses 1 to 4 were the first day. Verses 5 to 12 is the next day. And look what Luke does. Luke's a wonderful historian. And he brings out all the big guns and he says, these are all the co-conspirators. There were elders and teachers, there was Annas, there was Caiaphas, there was John, there was Alexander and then there are other men of the high priest family. So what what Luke is doing is is he's naming all the other co-conspirators. In other words, the whole religious hierarchy stood against Peter and John. And the challenge was... It's expressed in verse 7, but the challenge, I'm just summarising, the challenge was, who do you think you are? They're asking Peter and John, where are your credentials? Where's your certificate from the college? The Sadducees, what they're saying, and um, it's a whole group of people, but the Sadducees are the leaders, and they were saying, well, we're the authority, we're the teachers, clearly, you know that, everybody knows that, we're the voice of tradition, we represent true religion, who are you? And the whole episode on this next day, verses 5 to 12, was set up in order to intimidate. That's what was going on. And the whole design of this was to make the apostles melt In the TV series uh, West Wing, President Jed Bartlett brought the leader of the Republicans into the Oval Office one day to to solve a big dispute. You you know West Wing, it's it's, it's real life, I'm sure. Uh, And and Jed Bartlett deliberately sat down behind his huge, awesome, shining presidential desk and sat the Republican leader on a little stool, a little chair over there. And, and the Republican leader melted. He mumbled his words and he admitted, oh, this Oval Office, it's designed to intimidate, which of course it was, and Jed, he's the good guy, he always wins. See, the elders and the scribes and the Sadducees and the officials and the priests and the high priests, 
This is anti-faith at its most intimidating, ridiculing, diminishing best. Thinking if we get these two unschooled fellows standing before the, before the Sanhedrin council, they'll crumble. These are men who have got no school training, hauled into account before towering academics and power-dressed authorities and religious heavyweights, and they'll dissolve into warm jelly. That's what this is about. In English FA Cup language, it'd be like pitching the silk and power and majesty of Man U against a village team from the Cotswolds. Just no contest. That's the design. This is anti-faith seeking to destroy faith. But then something at verse 8, something happened that they didn't expect which is always the way of faith in Christ, God sends something we don't expect. A heaven-sent transformation of the apostles. Do you see verse... So verses 5 to 7 is the intimidation. You sit that side of the presidential desk, thank you. Verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said... And you can see his words go in verse 9 and verse 10... I'll tell you by whose name, he says. It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one that you crucified. It's his name. A transformation happened. There was no crumbling. This is the immediate fulfilment of Jesus' promise. Jesus said to the apostles before he left this earth, Jesus said to the apostles, When you're brought before the high officials and persecuted, do not worry. Do you remember what he said? It's Luke 21.12. Luke 21.12. Jesus said to Peter and to John, don't worry. When you're behind the presidential desk and you're getting interrogated in a court of law, don't worry. What did Jesus say? You know that episode, don't you? Luke 21. What did he say? Don't worry, but I will give you the words. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say when you need them. This is it. This is the immediate fulfillment of Luke 21. It's the same author writing for us, so obviously he's got it in his mind. I thought I'd better bring it back to our mind. Luke's clearly got this. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, let me tell you what's happening today. And so there's no contest when you have the filling of the Holy Spirit and the words that Jesus gives you. There is no contest. And so that's what leads to this powerful high point of gospel preaching. You know what I mean by that. The high point ends up at verse 12, doesn't it? Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see how God's working here in these ordinary unschooled men? Challenge after challenge, but the the greater the challenge led to greater clarity. This is the pinnacle of gospel preaching. Is there's only one 
person to look at and that is Jesus. And so under great pressure, they were led to, the, to great clarity. See, here's anti-faith and faith seen together in the one cameo. They've got opposite charges, opposite spins, coexisting, but one's trying to annihilate the other. Here the religious leaders were annoyed by the presence of gospel preachers, but the preachers standing firm. Let me go to a third lead. Let me see if this still holds for the rest of the story. At verse 13, the Sadducees withdraw. So there's anti-faith at work, verses 13 to 18. Uh, They saw the courage of Pete and John. They realised they're unschooled, ordinary men. I won't read every verse, but are you reading with me? That's verse 13. Verse 14, but since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. Verse 15, so they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then they conferred together. What are we going to do? Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they've done an outstanding miracle and we can't deny it, but we need to stop this thing from spreading. So this is the, this is the Sanhedrin withdrawing into their meeting, wondering what to do. Fascinating little question comes to my mind. <laughs> Haven't got an answer to it. How, how did Luke know? Hmm. So here's the Sanhedrin moving, as general assemblies often do. Moderator, I move we sit in private. So the Sanhedrin met in private, means everyone who's not a member goes outside. Uh, Luke wasn't a member. Peter and John weren't members. And this is their inside discussion. This is privacy revealed. This is wonderful. This is exciting. This is Holy Spirit inspiration at its best. How did Luke know what they were thinking behind closed doors? Was he the fly in the wall? No. Was he filled with the Holy Spirit as he wrote? Yes. And, and so here's anti-faith at its, at its worst, meeting together in privacy, discussing what to do, and, and look at their conclusions. Um, their conclusions were, well, we, we can't question their courage. They, they were quite amazing men. Uh, We also see that they'd been with Jesus and we suspect that's got something to do with it. Uh, We also can't deny that the crippled man is walking around making a nuisance of himself because he's leaping and jumping all over the place. We can't deny that. And we can't also deny that all the people love what's happening. But all that evidence, the evidence of courage and of healing and of acceptance give give anti-faith all the evidence possible and they will still not believe because believing isn't responding to evidence. Believing is an opening of God, of the heart. Here there was evidence, evidence, evidence and they discussed it, they admitted it, but no faith. Where there's no faith, evidence won't convince. Don't, don't go down that track. But where faith does exist, well, evidence confirms and bolsters. And then there is faith, isn't there? Uh, Verses 19 and 20. Uh, Peter and John said, well, okay, but we can't be silent. Verse 19, but John and Peter replied, 
Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. So again, similar sort of concept. Great pressure led to great courage this time. Great courage. The pinnacle of courage. And uh, Peter, who of course was a law-abiding man, Peter who writes in his letter that we should submit to all governing authorities, but Peter's standing up here and saying, but I'm not submitting to your order because it's anti-God. This was stunning courage. This, Peter's response was utterly exasperating to the rulers. Talk about poking the bear. Peter said, but we can't. Do you notice what really agitated them? So here's Peter saying, it's not just we're not going to obey you, but, but, but what Peter said was, uh, we've heard what you say and, and, and yet we can't follow that because you're not speaking of God. He said, well, we've got to choose between listening to God and listening to you, which assumes, what's the assumption behind that? The assumption is that the temple rulers and the Sadducees were not speaking for God. Here's anti-faith and faiths. Existing together, but one trying to annihilate the other. Which brings us to the last paragraph, which is verse 23 to verse 31, which is the believers' prayer meeting. You see what they did on their release? Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when their voices heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And then we have a sample of their prayer meeting. And it's powerful, isn't it? What does the church do when it's in trouble? What does the church do when it gets a good shake-up? When persecution rises, they go to pray. And look at their prayer. It's all about the sovereignty of God. The prayer is, Lord, you rule. Everything's going wrong here. Lord, you're ruling. You're the creator. You're the ruler. You're the one who reigns supreme. And who are the leaders of the world to rise up against you, Lord? And, of course, they're praying Psalm 2. Did you recognise that? The prayer they're using is Psalm 2. So here we are in a church prayer meeting, and what's their method of prayer? The method of prayer is they're praying Scripture back to God. It's a great method for prayer. God doesn't need to know. He doesn't need to be reminded, but this is the prayer of the believers praying Scripture back to God. God... What, what, what the believers are saying is, Lord, you remember that you wrote in Psalm 2? <laughs> We're claiming that. So prayer can be Christians claiming Scripture, praying back to God his own words. And, of course, this theology is quite stunning. As we close, I want to, on the basis of this episode recorded suggests three ways in which we could particularly apply it if we haven't been already can you see particularly this leads us to an evangelistic application and particularly the high point which is verse 12 and I want to remind you as a church keep verse 12 as your focus keep Jesus front and centre and we need to sharpen our evangelistic edge. Church of Jesus Christ, here in Canberra, do not compromise. 
commit yourselves to the uniqueness of Jesus as the only Saviour. Now be clear on this. This is not popular. Please understand that verse 12 is not popularly understood and nor is it appreciated and it will not be well received. Our culture will balk at this. As soon as we make an exclusive claim for the way in which we can be renewed in heart to God through Jesus. Once we make an exclusive claim for the path of renewal with God, cleansing of sin, freedom and fulfilment, we're at odds with our culture. I want you to be aware of that. That is not the flavour and commitment of Australian culture, which instead is pluralistic and inclusive egalitarian and all sorts of other words we can add to it. And verse 12 doesn't fit into that in any warm way. Australian culture is shaped by an ever-growing pluralism. The old consensus of 20th century that we're sort of used to live by and claim some moral coherency because of it, that's gone. This, this is a new atmosphere that's showing itself now even in law, now prescribed by, by regulation, by rule and by law. Uh, that's how it's being shaped. This atmosphere is pluralism that does not tolerate a discriminating view of the way to life with God. It can't fit into that. Jesus is the way to God through the forgiveness of sin does not fit into the rubric and the strictures of pluralism. They're at odds with it and I want you to recognise that. So evangelism is hard work in that sense. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying, not saying water it down. I'm just saying, okay, we're an evangelistic church. You know what you're in for, don't you? That we do live in a hostile atmosphere to this gospel. Our culture is not entirely hostile. I mean, we have wonderful relationships with non-Christians and we cooperate together in a lot of things and, and Australia is a wonderful country and we join together to make Australia a wonderful country. But I'm saying, when you speak about the gospel, about the way to life through the crucifixion of Jesus and through resurrection, that's the bit that won't settle easily. You get a reaction you'll get a reaction. You okay with that? You don't mind being reacted against? So this is the banner we hold up in evangelism, verse 12. I mean, you explained and outlined and enlarged, but verse 12. And it comes from Peter's bold declaration. It's by the name of Jesus that you crucified, God raised from the dead, that this man stands healed. It's by Jesus. I think, without going over any more, I think Peter is breathtakingly, brilliantly profound in his words. Here he is, he says, now, you remember, you remember that man Jesus from that little backward village called Nazareth? You know the proverb, does anything good comes out of Nazareth? And Peter says, this man of Nazareth is the universal saviour. What a leap. He's gone from Nazarene 
to the universal saviour. From a little village of nothing to the universe. I'll let you apply that to your own heart and life. Two more applications, so I'll make them a little briefer, perhaps. Um, Because Russell did say that the services go for an hour and 15 minutes. I did smile at that. Now, second application, courage. Brothers and sisters, will you take courage from this? Or are you going to be chocolate soldiers? don't know if you remember George Bernard Shaw's character tour. Shaw called them chocolate cream soldiers. So he gave derogatory label to a soldier who would not fight but looks good in a uniform, but he'd melt in battle. Do you have courage? Do you have the courage of verse 19 and verse 20 of this passage? Do you have the courage of Peter and John? Where does it come from? You don't need formal education to be courageous. You don't need more information. You don't need to be clever. You don't need to be a pastor. You don't need to be an elder. You don't need to be a teacher. You just need time with Jesus. You need real fellowship with Jesus to be courageous. And your life can be transformed because you spend time with Jesus. So Church of Jesus Christ here in Canberra, stay strong, be courageous, be bold. Uh, Courage is the ability to do the right thing regardless of the circumstances. Don't worry about sometimes we get a bit fearful. Being a bit fearful about issues, that doesn't mean you lack courage. It depends what you do with that. I'm sure Peter and John were shaking their boots before the Sanhedrin. They were shaking their boots, but they stood up and said, no, that's courage. I think it was Tim Keller coined that phrase for me. Courage is the ability to do the right thing regardless of circumstances and the danger. It's not the absence of fear. It's it's the right thing to do. Transformation comes by spending time with Jesus and being filled with the Spirit. Finally, Prayer. There is an application here for the church to pray. Verses, uh, well, right to the end, verse 31. Are you a church of prayer? So when would I come this week and find you at prayer, for example? Are you a church that prays often? Just be encouraged and and be instructed. Be be prodded by this example in Acts 4. Uh, Remember what these Christians were doing. They weren't praying together in that room for release from trouble. They were praying for the gospel. They were praying, Lord, have your sovereign way. They weren't praying, Lord, come down and smash the heads of the Sadducees. And they weren't praying for miracles of vengeance. They were praying for miracles of mercy. And what do they pray for in verse 29? According to verse 29, Their prayer was for boldness to speak. Here they were persecuted, hounded, criticised, ridiculed. What did they pray for? Boldness. What else did they pray for? Nothing. So are these principles landing with you? Will you take at least one or two of them home? Let me close with this modified verse 
when the world saw the courage of Canberra Presbyterians and they realised that they were unschooled ordinary folk, it was astonished and took note that these men and women had been with Jesus. Jesus. 